Many organizations struggle when it comes to communicating and realizing their business strategies. Many workers don't even understand the strategies in their own company. Welcome to the North Star with William Ulrich. Find out where your organization stands, what you might be doing right, and where you can improve. Now, here's your host, William Ulrich. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You're listening to the North Star. Feel free to contact me by email, LinkedIn, or at my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Today, we'll be discussing the rise and fall of software recipes with my guest, Darius Blasband of Raincode. You can find reference material related to this show on the North Star Radio Show page of my website, including a link to Darius's latest book. So Darius Blasban is CEO of Raincode, a Brussels-based technology company that delivers software tools that enable cloud and related software migrations. Darius has broad experience in running high-tech companies and is a skilled compiler and mission-critical systems design, as well as data and software uh, uh, expert. He holds a PhD and master's degree from, and this is the uh, American version of the uh, name of his university, the Free University of Brussels. Uh, Darius is author of The Rise and Fall of Software Recipes, which challenges accepted norms in the field of software development and highlights the root cause of many of the challenges facing software development teams today. He's an acclaimed speaker. He, He speaks Dutch, English, Farsi, and French, and he is also a composer. You can contact Darius at uh, email, by email, at Darius, D-A-R-I-U-S, at raincode.com, at his website, raincode.com, or you can find him on LinkedIn. So welcome, Darius. Did I miss anything in the introduction? No, it was pretty comprehensive. My mom would be flattered. (laughs) Yeah, it sounded really good. Um, So can you, before we jump into everything today, can you just give us a little background on Raincode, your company? So uh, at Raincode, we provide uh, tools and services to take aging system running on old mainframe machines and make them run on more flexible and more affordable, more modern uh, systems. Okay. At the end of the day, that's what it boils down to. We take uh, typically, you know, aging computer systems that were de- de- developed in the 70s, 80s, 90s sometimes, and 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 the, the entire the entire uh, game is about making sure that we keep the same behavior so that those mission-critical systems can keep on working, even though the platform, the hardware platform the, uh, is no longer the same. At the end, I mean, there, there are quite a few technicalities behind this, but this is really the business proposition excellent, we make. Excellent. Uh, sounds like you've got a, uh, a, a company with uh, a strong technical people in that group, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're pretty pretty good but you know a bunch of nerds and as a matter of fact i mean i, I say I, I shave and I, I wear a tie from time to time and I, I try to look decent but at the end of the day i'm just a nerd i'm just a <laughs> okay uh so i also wanted to mention a little bit about your book the rise and fall of software recipes uh and i wanted to let also listeners know in full disclosure that i wrote the forward for that book at, at your request uh and i enjoyed it a lot uh so um and i did review a um I posted pretty much what, what's equivalent to most of the forward on my website as a review. Uh, can you just give us uh, a quick motivation behind uh, what, what this, you just, when you decided to put that book together, what got you to, to, to do that? Okay, there are two motivations. The first was that I was traveling way too much and I had way too much time on my hands. And there's only so much you can do when you are you know, in airports and planes and trains. So writing felt like a good thing to do. 
Uh, the second motivation is that I've been in this monkey business like for 30 years. Um, and I see tides of people coming with the same fallacies over and over again. And the core fallacy that I wanted to, to talk about was the fallacy that uh, software could be developed with uh, less than qualified people, less than very smart people, that there was a way we could use what I call transitive intelligence, that someone very smart could come up with something that we would call the recipe, and, and that by applying the recipe, people don't have to be just as smart and would deliver adequate software. And, and the whole idea, the whole point I'm trying to make is that, listen, we've tried that for 30 or 40 years. At some point, we must accept that it just won't work. Incremental changes to the way we apply the recipes won't change the basic fact that uh, they basically don't work at all. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, and, and I, I enjoyed reading the many, many angles on, on, that, uh, on that conversation. Um, it's the, the title is The Rise and Fall of Software Recipes. So maybe uh, I can just briefly ask if you could explain what you meant by software recipes. Uh, a software recipe is, um, it happens typically within an organization and we say, okay, now when we develop software, we should do this, you know, we should talk to the, the user and talk about screens and talk about this and talk about that and have a review and have essentially a number of steps that have to be followed mm -hmm. thoroughly uh, with the hope based on the assumption that by following these steps, we will achieve repeatable quality. Uh, but as I sometimes say, software isn't like chocolate chip cookies. Uh, <laughs> every piece of chocolate, sorry, every piece of software is different all about my nature. And, and the software recipes just do not work. The idea that just by applying the same steps, it's going to work is a fallacy. And what happens is that organizations start with, say, a number of steps and then obviously fail for some kind of project. And then say, well, we obviously forgot one step in our recipe and they add steps and they add steps. <laughs> and then at some point, you know, the thing comes to a standstill because all, it's all stuck. They're just, you know, it just doesn't work at all. Mm. Right. Um, I, I have seen exactly what you are talking about. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, you work with lots of organizations. You also see lots of, lots of software out there um, that was built actually over many years yeah. Uh, so what's your thinking on the state of, and actually I have a question, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, the state of software development in just generally in organizations today as, as you see it? Um, I mean, obviously I deal with old software. So my, my, my perspective is going to be tainted by time in a way mm -hmm. that many people would not perceive in the same way. Right. And, and obviously because that's my bias, I really see that software as it's being developed, quite often forgets about time. Or should I put, putting it differently, you see organizations rushing to get a piece of software uh, running um, without realizing that the challenge is not to get the software to run. The challenge is, okay, who is going to make sure that thing still runs in 10, 15, or 20 years' time? And, and that's where, where things get a little bit tricky. And that... The only perspective we're looking at is development time. Oh, we have to develop as fast as possible and everything else, nothing else matters. And in practical terms, yes, it does matter. At the same time, I shouldn't complain too much because it's precisely because many people did not make that kind of time-based assessments that I'm getting my kids through college. So, you know, the, uh, I, I see the <laughs> lining of it. Uh, but the, the perception of, uh, of time as an important factor uh, it seems to be totally uh, 
non-existent in most organizations. Interestingly enough, it goes both ways. What I mean by that is that uh, I, I know of one organization and they build extremely mission-critical train control systems and and uh, and it's a, it's a household name, so I'm, I'm not going to give names, but they are very good at, you know, uh, mission-critical electronics and safety systems and, and all these things. And whenever, and, and they're wired to do software in this way. And if they have to develop something like a web page that should be on for a week, they just can't help themselves. They develop as if that web page was going on a rocket to the moon. <laughs> and that thing costs fortunes because as yeah. if that thing was as mission critical and had to work forever in degraded environment. So, so, so in other words, what I'm trying to get at is go both ways. Uh, I'm not saying that we should develop uh, software assuming that it will work for 20 years as a matter of principle because that would be just too expensive. But when we look at uh, uh, some, something we develop, I sometimes say, well, the, the, the deadline for putting in production is important. The, the deadline for putting it out of production is just as important. How long do you want that thing to run? And if it is for eternity, which is kind of the default answer you're going to get there, people build what they consider as cathedrals. So we're going to do something great. And for, and, and, and for the foreseeable future, our entire organization is going to work on that. And, and that's that there is that cathedral uh, aspect to it, you know, for all future generations, which obviously mm. is a fallacy, but you see the, the, the thinking. Uh, but if that is really the, what you want to achieve, uh, it has a serious impact on the way you should develop software. Yeah, I, I, um, I understand the whole, uh, and actually very well put about, people think about how quickly can I get it built and in and running as opposed to this is going to be here 20 years. Am I going to be able to change it next year? Or is it going to work with all the other systems that I just, that I'm also running, right? Or that I need to build, right? So, and, 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 right? and you present it as I, you know, will I, but yeah. more generally, will it? At the end of the yeah. day, year, the, right. the year 2000 problem is little more than forgetting about, you know, oh, there, there's a deadline there. Right. Uh, and at the same time, I can really appreciate that there are some concerns, you know, so uh, I went through the year 2000 uh, issue. I mean, that shows my age, I guess. Uh, I know that I'm not going to see the year 3000 problem if that ever was, was to be a thing. Uh, and I appreciate that at some point people just say, well, you know, it's not my problem. So I, I just let it go. At some point in 50 years' time, we know that you and I will both be fertilizing daffodils, and that's absolutely fine. So we have a, a tendency to push to other people, and it's no longer our problem. So, but still, organizations depend on this, and, and, and they're stuck. And in our world, the world where we look at people call us and say, well, I have a software system which is absolutely critical, and it's built on this and this and this and that. At the end of the day, it's a very technical conversation, and sometimes we have to uh, to tell people, um, sorry, there is no way out. So what should I do? Well, I'm, I'm tempted to, to, to say pray, but that's not really my, my, my domain. But I say, yeah, sorry, you're stuck. You have an intractable problem on your hands. There is nothing I can do. There's nothing anyone I know can do something about it. You, you right. are in deep trouble. We, uh, we have a mutual co colleague, uh, Don Estes, that uh, we were talking about before the show started. Uh, who was on this show a, a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, he, he points out, because he was talking about old systems, and he points out that, you know, we wrote these, and I, I came up, uh, my first computer, which was old at the time, uh, was an IBM 36050, and, and I think it had one mega memory. 
And, uh, you know, and I was learning assembler and I was told everything's, you know, everything's a crunch. And the, and the guys I was learning from came out of the fifties the and sixties. So, you know, it's like, you have to crunch it all down because there's not enough space and nothing's going to fit. So that's where, right. So, so uh, there was a generation that had some, uh, excuse behind, uh, and I, I shouldn't use the word excuse, but there was a reasoning why some of the software out of that era looks like it looks and was built the way it was built, right? There was, and, and there was an explanation for at least some of that, right? Um, as time progressed, and certainly rolling up to today, uh, you know, you have just an, an incredible amount of computing power at your hands, right? And, and memory and everything else, right? So uh, we should be able to write uh, today good software without worrying about those types of issues. The year 2000 was your example, right? Um, yeah, so, but, right. but there you're talking essentially about optimization, which is one factor. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I were to follow your reasoning, you know, say, well, yeah. now we, could, we should be able to develop software using uh, mathematical formulas and, and formal logic where we describe mm -hmm. things using set theory and uh -huh. And and we know that's not the way things go. We mm -hmm. we know that at the end of the day, uh, coders are considered like you know uh, caffeine induced monkeys in the basement generating code at some kind of rate, and and that's about it, right? Uh, yeah. In other words, what you say about about performance is true, and only to a degree, by the way, because sometimes when we talk to, to to the younger generation, we realize that they they don't care too much about performance, and that is fine. But at the same time, they have lost consciousness about, okay, how bad things go. Because, you know, uh, something is fast, but it's not infinitely fast. A factor 10, factor 100, factor 10,000. And at some point, it becomes slow. Don't never think that it's going to be fast as a matter of principle, no matter what. Right. Um, but, but at the end of the day, performance is only one factor. Quality is a totally different thing. And, and that brings me, I would say, to, to my other uh, concern in our world is, uh, the lack of formal training. Um, people mm. code. It, it's very interesting because when I was younger, we were supposed to be computer engineers or computer scientists, and and now we've been downgraded to coders. Don't get me wrong; I'm fine. I think there's a chapter in my book says, you know, uh, my name is Darius and I'm a codeaholic, uh, which I, I really live up to. You know, I, I code is like the fun part of my of my job, uh, but reducing it to writing code is is, is is a reduction really there's way more to this than than just writing code and and it and many i mean i don't know about your experience but uh and i don't want to be demeaning but you see uh teams of uh, the 100 people and out of the 100 people uh, there are like 20 25 30 that are formally trained in computer science because mm -hmm. it's a science it's not just a trade it's not just something where you learn a language and then there you go it's it, it's more involved than that right um, yeah, when I got trained, I had to know um, all the assembler language and how to manipulate all those underlying things. So, you know, I don't think people have mostly seen those languages even today. Uh, no, they, they're, they're no longer teach. They're no, sorry, they're no longer taught in yeah. any courses I've heard of. Yeah, that that's interesting. <laughs> um, so, if if you could make a, a and and if you can't, that's fine. But a, any kind of generalizations on the you've already said a lack of training in terms of uh, some of the shortcomings. Is it uh, the lack of uh, computers, formal computer science education for shortcomings? Is that a, you see that as the sort of the number one issue uh, with a lot of software uh, developers? 
I don't know. There, there are so many issues. There, there's one issue is that we depend on way more software than we're able to produce. Mm -hmm. it, at, at the end of the day, now we have to make choices and say, well, it would be nice to have this and this and this piece of software. But we just, and I say we as a, as a society, it's not just as an organization, there is no way we can produce that amount of software reliably. There's a problem which is uh, there's way too much money in computing, which mm -hmm. means that, that, uh, that people get the wrong incentives and, and because there's too much money, the professional standards go down. Uh, there's a dramatic lack of resources, so even the, the, the customers are, get less demanding and, and you've got a kind of a culture of mediocrity that, that, that gets there. And, and, and then I would say lack of formal training is just a normal consequence because uh, organizations tolerate uh, people without formal training. Well, then why would you do formally train them. And, and so I, I'd like to say, oh, this is the root, the root cause. I don't know. But you, you see that there's that entire thing where, oh, there's way too much money we need. We don't have enough. Well, standards go down. I, I guess you could, uh, an economist would call that a, a free market. Yeah, yeah right. I, I, you gave me actually, it was an interesting percentage. So six out of 20, three out of 10. Um, I would say that that probably sounds about right in my experience as well that I've seen out there. Uh, in, in terms of that. And, um, you know, the, the, we're going to talk a little more about teams and, and, and that type of thing. But, uh, you know, the, the, so if, if I was looking at the average or if I, if I was looking at those, those other 14 people uh, that have less training, and, and I, we ran into this in our careers probably, uh, you know, in a lot of different scenarios. And, and I certainly did as well. I, I saw the same thing. There were people who somehow... Uh, got into the job and, and didn't have that background. Most did, but some didn't. And, um, and I think that has changed. Uh, we also talked about the love of, of the uh, actual work as moving you into the field, right? And that's, that's something that needs to be there as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, don't get me started on that. That's okay. like a, a, right. an obsession of mine. All right. Well, we'll go back to that obsession <laughs> after, a, uh, after a quick break. Uh, you're listening to The North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing the rise and fall of software recipes with my guest, Darius Plasban. Uh, we'll be back right after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? 
tactical strategy group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful postmortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to WMMulrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMulrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich, and you can reach me on LinkedIn, email, or my website. We're discussing the rise and fall of software recipes with my guest, Darius Blasban. Uh, We were talking about um, uh, people back at one point in time uh, tended to get into this field, uh, and and I got personally into the field because I I, I took my first computer class uh, in my university, and I thought, I can do this for a living. Uh, this is way better than trying to do balance sheets and, and, uh, and, and accounting work. And I said, I can't even believe I can do this for a living. Uh, but I didn't go into it because of, uh, you know, I didn't chase it because of the money. I, I, I think that there's a, um, there's a motivational factor here in terms of uh, the, the people that do move into the field. One, because more of I can get a job or get the money or, um, you know, versus rather than, you know, boy, I really, I love this and I want to get into it and I really want to formalize my training on it, right? Well, it's a, it's a complex combination. I'm probably the wrong person to ask. First, you have to appreciate that um, I was born into it, like literally. My father uh, was one of the first computer nerds ever. There's no other way to put it. So interestingly enough, he wrote the first ever code generator for the first ever COBOL compiler by Honeywell in due time. Wow. So you can say, yeah. So, so to me, computing was the easy thing to do. My brothers, uh, both great guys, they got themselves totally different careers. But when they were kids or even teenagers, they knew how to code because that, that, that's what we did, right? So, so for me, um, getting into computing was the easy way. Uh, uh, you, you could even claim that it, for me, it was the fallback plan. Um, I, the, my first paid job was to play the piano in restaurants. So you know, <laughs> I, I, I have a past of my own. Okay. Um, so, and and I started college um, in math and I only switched to computer science later on. And I, and, you know, I was, I apologize for that really because I was unbearably arrogant at the time. And it took me a while to realize that, oh, you know, c- computer science is a science. There is more. To, uh, I, I went to college and I said, okay, these, these guys have a wisdom that I didn't have. So I, I can talk from firsthand experience. And with all the arrogance of the world, I had to uh, accept that, you know, no, there is something to formal education there for sure. And yeah. at the same time, I mean, we at Raincode, we, we, we employ computer need, uh, compiler nerds. So a very specialized brand of people uh and the very vast majority of our people are very formally trained and phds and you know masters and you know very impressive resumes and there are a couple of exceptions i mean uh, i can think of one guy who's not formally trained and what he does he's a freaking genius so i'd love to say i have absolute wisdom regarding this i don't uh but as a 
trend, uh, we see sometimes very impactful decisions being made by people who very bluntly have literally no idea what they're getting into. Yeah, so uh, I want to move on to uh, software recipes and uh, talk a little bit more about those. Uh, you, um, uh, you have spoken about those. You've written about some of the software recipes that are out there. But uh, did you want to share any, uh, any, any examples out there in the field? Yeah, I, I, called, I, I called these things um, uh, recipes because I didn't want to use methodologies, which is like the mm -hmm. common term, because I wanted to encompass all the efforts that were prescriptive in nature saying, okay, this is how you should do stuff. Mm -hmm. Because there was one obvious culprit, which is the uh, Agile movement. Yeah. Uh, and, and the first thing that the Agile movement says, oh, we are a movement, we're not a methodology, which is a way for them you know, to, to avoid accountability and say, no, 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 hold on. Uh, if you ask me, you are a methodology, you are prescriptive, you are actually uh, explaining how things should happen. That's a methodology. You know, we can talk about... Uh, taxonomy and terminology all you want but at the end of the day at the, at the end of the day you are a methodology but i didn't want to get into that argument so you know what i call that a recipe that's where the word comes from okay. right and uh, and the i have i have i've been crucified i mean virtually uh, <laughs> but uh, i've been crucified by uh, agile you know aficionados that say oh you know how can you say this nothing beats agile and and uh, there are so many counter examples first you the, 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 when we talk about Agile, it's, a little, you, you, it's fairly easy to debunk, right? For instance, it says, well, you should do this, 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 and this, and that. And then you say, well, but what about this? Yeah, they said, you should apply it with nuance. That's, you know, you should apply with, mm. uh, you, you need expertise. You need to be good at it. You need to be smart. And then my answer is then, if you need to be smart, why do we need Agile? Because you know what? Smart people have been able to provide software before Agile. Again, we're talking about time. Some people think that we started software development five years ago. No, we haven't. We started develop, starting develop, uh, software development a long time ago. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so, so no, Agile is a methodology, and they have a way of, of uh, avoiding accountability for anything. Uh, um, oh, you have to be smart. Well, if, you are, if you have to be smart, it defeats the purpose. The old point about having a prescriptive way of, of developing software is that people that are not necessarily as bright, as trained, as I'm trying to find the, the politically correct word, but you know, I guess you, you see where I'm getting this. Um, let's, let's qualify people to develop adequate software. If you need them to be brilliant, you know what? You're solving a non-existing problem. You, you, mm. Because brilliant people have managed a long, long, long time ago. Uh, as an anecdote, which is one of my favorite, I posted a LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn post uh, a, few, a few years ago already. And uh, it, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing where I explained that Agile is a, is a religion, right? It has all the attributes of a religion. It has its uh, apostles and they have their principles, or, you know, and, and, and they, ha they, ha they have all the things you can possibly think of a religion. It's all there. It's like, it's like a miracle. So, and, and I got comments and people say, oh, you're not, you don't know what you're talking about. I say, fair enough, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm married, I can take criticism. So, um, and then there was one guy and that was so hilarious. He said something along the lines of, oh, I'm so sad for you that you didn't see the light yet. And uh, I'd like to talk to you about the beauty of Agile. And, and perhaps it's me reading more than what he wrote, in the, but in the tone it felt, say, what's the point you missed? When I said it sounds like a religion, how more like a religion can they sound, right? It, it was like, 
Wow. <laughs> so way back, as I remember how this emerged, uh, there was a, um, a, a few uh, folks got together and yeah. they put together these agile principles and they yeah. posted those principles. You talk about them in chapter 26 of your book, in fact. And um, uh, when, when you look at the principles and, and they are actually principles, right? They're not prescriptive yeah. per se. But I thought I looked at those and it's like, okay, um, so uh, there's some reasonable statements in here, but, but you, had, you had a few thoughts on those principles. Can you share some of those? Yeah, you know more about my book than I remember, obviously. <laughs> um, but um, a, a number of things they advocate is pure in, is so obvious. You know, it's like apologize, but it's like you know, flush after going to the restrooms. So yeah, that part I could have guessed. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it, nobody's going to argue against it. And then th th there is there are a couple of things that are really really interesting. Like for instance, uh, I don't even remember because trust me, I mean I've read those things, but I'm I'm not all that. Mm, involved in the agile stuff, but there was that thing about uh, involving uh, the, the stakeholders, mm -hmm. you know, the, the customer in the process, okay? And it sounds reasonable from a distance, right? Okay. Uh, let me tell you the dark side. The dark side of this is a way we are going to take someone from the business in our team so that we are going to share, we're going to spread accountability with other people and they're going to defend us even though we do not deliver. <laughs> you see, so it's just That's a matter right. of perspective. It sounds okay from a distance, right. uh, but you've seen software development teams in action. You can really see, see the dynamic of saying, okay, we have a stakeholder that who's going to defend us. And we say, yeah, you're part of us. It's going to be late. It's not going to work. I mean, whatever flaw the software has, you've got some. So that, that was one of the examples. That was one of the principles that was, uh, that was advocated by the agile movement where I say, well, you know, you can read it both ways. And when you read it with the, with the admittedly critical eye, I mean, I, you, you could mm -hmm. say, oh, you see evil all over the place. Well, there is evil all over the place. Right. It's not me. Um, but if you look at it with that lens, then you say, okay, now you can see how that thing can go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so principles, right, are, are, you know, sort of statements of truth. And some of them, as you said, there were obvious, like, um, uh, you know, if you if you take the opposite of a principle, and if it's if the opposite seems absurd, uh, it's probably not a great principle. But but um, the, the, it it then grew into something that became um, uh, more prescriptive. So it started introducing roles like scrum master, right? And uh, and and there there started becoming all kinds of of words associated with uh, you know special ways to meet. And, yeah. you know, and, and how you organize into groups and, and some of those kinds of things. Um, and, and that to me seems uh, less principled and more prescriptive. Is that, is that somewhere where you're going with, with, the, with the prescriptiveness? Oh, no, no, no. You're way too kind. That's not prescriptive. That's just folklore. That is just, uh, I, I, if you ask, I mean, it's prescriptive, but that doesn't matter. That, yeah. that, that it, it, it's part of the folklore around it. It's, it. To a vast degree, it's pretty pointless. But again, to the, 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 the religion side of thing, you, you, are, you organize, um, uh, how can I, the, the very idea of a dogma is that you start doing things just because mm -hmm. and having stand-up meetings and calling the, and is an example of that. Calling that the scrum master. Okay, do you know what? This is the guy who calls people for a meeting. 
that's not, I, I am a compiler engineer. I don't call myself a compiler master. You could keep on saying that there's all that thing about terminology to, to right. turn it into a cult. And when you look at the kind of reaction you get from this community, oh yeah, it's a cult. It's a cult. There's no question about that. Yeah, and today we have scaled Agile, so they made it bigger uh, with more parts and, and more structure to it, right? Yeah, so I'm going to confess something to you. Uh, I, I had only looked at it from a distance mm -hmm. uh, before, before the, this interview, and then you know, so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to you know, go deeper into it. And uh, it felt to me like, oh, I have a very inappropriate metaphor, but I think you're going to love it. Uh, it felt like porn without sex. It felt like an intrinsic contradiction. Uh, Agile is just about not having structure. It's just about uh, having a written word that says, we don't need structure because we know what we're doing. I think it's a fallacy, but that's fine. And then you say, well, we're going to do Agile and we're going to put structure on top of it. They say, well, there's something's got to give. You can't have it both ways. You cannot at the same time be an advocate for saying, okay, you know, self-organizing team is the best thing. And then, well, we're going to have to put structure on top of it. I, it, it to me, it, it's just, remember when in the beginning of this interview, we talked about having recipes that, that evolved and grew over time. I would see this as a typical example, but applied to the Agile movement. Oh, Agile doesn't work all that well. We're going to put structure back onto it without realizing that the whole idea of Agile is um, legalizing, is giving rules on how not to put rules, which you know, I think is delightfully ironic. Well, one of the things that I, I've seen on, on efforts in one of my uh, uh, really good, strong software um, uh, architects that I work with said that, you know, he goes, there's 50 people on this whole program and I got six people writing code. And, um, you know, that that some of the what's out there today with some of these development efforts, you see a lot of overhead. Uh, and, and I remember back in my day, I remember a four person team, uh, you know, I split some some project lead work with some people. I was sort of an analyst. We were all writing code. Every, every, all four of us were writing code, right? Two senior people, two more junior people that we we're built, you know, bringing up to speed. And, uh, you know, there wasn't anybody doing anything else. In fact, they, 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 they fired our project manager and then they fired his boss. So we were working out there alone and we got a lot more done uh, with, without supervision than we did with supervision. So I'm just wondering if, uh, if something got off, off base here over the years. It may have, and at the same time, uh, I'm trying not to, to read too much into it because different organizations have different sure. kind of constraints. Uh, uh, first, you, you, you could even say that out of a team of 50, it may be better to have six people code than have, pe than have mm. more people code if they don't know what they're doing. I'm perfectly okay with 44 people you know, playing baseball uh, in, the, in the break room or whatever uh, and let the people writing code write code adequately. So besides... you. That's probably an, another factor of time. Remember that the software, the kind of software you're talking about was developed in a time where productivity was different, machines were mm. different, and, and the constraints were very different. And at the same time, uh, we also see that there, is, there are true benefits of having formal testing uh, mm. teams on top of it. So uh, six out of 50 sounds like extreme. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to, I would agree with <laughs> right, you on that. Right. Uh, but the fact that in a, a software project there's way more than coding does not offend me per se. Mm -hmm. that, that, that it, uh, for instance, you know, when we develop products, bear in mind, so we don't just write software, we develop products. And I have a, uh, a dogma, which I tell my people. I say, well, 
um, you as an organization, you don't write software that we document. Uh, we have a documentation that you implement. Mm. In other words, when you're doing product development, the, what is in the software is irrelevant if it's not documented, if it's not in documentation, which means that the documentation effort, to some extent, dwarfs the development. And, and it's not, I'd love to say that we're entirely wired around documentation. We're not. But that's what I'm trying to push my people to, to, to keep in mind. Say, listen, this is a product. If there is something in the software and there's no track of it, well, it, it, is, it, it is lost. It's, it's, it's forgo- it will be forgotten. It's a matter of time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, how can I say this? Uh, in, in practice, we're not that well organized. In, mm-hmm. in, but at least I try to push my people in that direction very, uh, very okay. thoroughly. Say, listen, if, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and just to emphasize that, I can really appreciate that. Uh, and, and bear in mind, we write uh, development tools, which means that our documentation needs, I, I wouldn't say they're limited, but we can be reasonably lenient on style and format and all those things. While uh, if you write something for end users, then documentation becomes a huge issue. And then if you've got compliance on top of it and security on top of it, four out of 50 could happen. I can't really imagine that. So, so that's good. So uh, you, one point I want to pick up on is, uh, and, and maybe a brief comment, because we are going to go to break in a couple of minutes, but we'll come back, or actually in a minute. Uh, the, uh, the point where, you know, if, if I've got 12 people and six of them are really strong and six of them are really not strong, I'll put it that way, all, all on the development side, all writing code. I'm probably better off with letting the six just work to do it and then giving those other six maybe something else to do. Is that a, you know, and, and not pull down the, other, the, the good six? Is there, is just to kind of throw out this example. It's, it's, I feel bad because it sounds very elitist as a statement. It does. Uh, <laughs> I, and and, and uh, <laughs> let's say depending on how bad the bad, the bad, the, the less good people are. Yeah. Well, yeah, I feel a bit bad about the way you frame it. It's 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 pushing me yeah. in a very dark corner. But yeah. well, I I work with a guy that did that, um, <laughs> and it was successful because then his his other people didn't get pulled down. Uh, so you're listening to the North Star. I'm William Arwick. We're discussing the rise and fall of software recipes with my guest Darius Blasban. We'll be back right after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Looking to enhance your business architecture skills, become a certified business architect, or align your team to a common approach? 
Check out Business Architecture Associates. Industry pioneers and co-founders Wendy Keene and William Ulrich have trained thousands of business professionals, turning beginners into practitioners and practitioners into experts. BAA offers in-house and public business architecture training for individuals and organizations with more than 20 courses to choose from, including the Business Architecture Bootcamp, popular mini-course series, and custom workshops. BAA can create a learning path for you and your organization. Why learn from the rest when you can learn from the best? Check out BAA's course offerings at businessarchitectureassociates.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing the rise and fall of software recipes with my guest, Darius Blasban. Uh, so let's uh, let's just talk about um, uh, um, developers, and you talked earlier about education, uh, you know, and, and you all, you and I have also talked offline about the challenge of getting good people. I think that was your other premise for your book. Um, good people are important to have, but good people are hard to find. Is that is that still your perspective? Oh yeah, they're hard to find and they're impossible to make. I mean, you cannot. I'd love to have, talking about recipe, I'd love to have a recipe to take people off the street and turn them into adequate software developer. I, I, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, I, can, I can only make the, the statement that, well, as of right now, I'm still looking for uh, a way to get around the fact that there is no way we can develop good software without good people. It, it, at the end of the day, I, I'm still looking for a solution to that. Okay. Oh, so, sorry. I, let me let me rephrase because I no. I'm uh, the entire industry is looking for a solution to that. My assessment is that they can keep looking for a while. They're not going to find anything. That's okay. Um, but even with that, uh, you still want to look for and try to identify the good ones, right? Is that fair? Absolutely. So, so when you're hiring, and 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 I realize you're a, a specialized case, but l- let's just say when l- l- the um, somebody's out there and they're trying to bring in. Uh, uh, software developers um, should they be looking for people with formal degrees, for example? Uh, if at all possible, yes. I mean, okay. uh, th- uh, thinking that uh, oh, degrees do not matter is uh, is a fallacy. So you can argue about they're not going to teach you everything, and I, I I would agree with that to some degree. But uh, th- there are many things you can read in books. What is taught in college is not just the books. There's more to this. There's a the right. science part of it, which uh, unless you're a genius, a polymath of, of totally different range than, than mine, uh, you, there is no way you can read it on your own. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. And so uh, there's probably a, a, a sliding scale here to some degree because not everybody's going to have that computer science degree. In fact, a, a, a small percentage might have yeah. that kind of formal training. Uh, are there other things to look at when you're looking at uh, software developers in terms of trying to identify uh, uh, people for a team, if somebody's building a team? 
It's funny that you mentioned this. Uh, I run a podcast uh, with a friend of mine talking about compiler design. So it's a very niche, niche, niche thing, right? And, and when we interview people, we ask them, you know, what is the, the most important uh, quality you're lo looking for uh, people in our trade? And I say our trade, I mean compiler design. So it's the, I'm looking for some kind of wisdom about, you know, the very narrow niche that I'm in. Yeah. And uh, a wonderful guy, I, I can't get to the name right now, but he came up with the most amazing answer. He says, oh, you have to be kind. Mm. You will not, and it sounds like the most, you know, uh, rosy, uh, you know, marshmallowy statement ever, but there's something to that. You must be able to, you know, uh, ask favors, uh, to be asked favors. You mm. must be able to be talked to. It's a, it's a very simple Social skill, and don't get me wrong. I mean, we're we, we. I've got forty engineers on staff. Uh, some of them pronounce a full sentence per day on a good day, right? <laughs> so they can be extremely nerdish. They can be extreme. So I, I'm not saying that you have to be talkative. I'm not saying that you have to be social, but you have to be kind. And I can think of one of my engineers. He's very, you know, uh, quiet. He doesn't talk unless being talked to. Uh, I haven't seen his face forever because he'd rather not have his camera on and on and on and on. But if I call him in the middle of the night and I say, listen, I'm, I've, got a, I've got a problem with, say, one of my kids says, don't move, I'm, I'm on my way. Mm. Being kind, being, being able to empathize with others sounds like the most remote thing for people in our trade. But in fact, it's, it's one of the most effective factors ever. So um, the, the, when, when we're looking at, so we're bringing people in, um, kindness is, is, that's a good one. And I think that that works for a lot of, a lot of professions. I'll, I'm going to sort of file that one away. Um, the uh, the the formal training obviously is one. Uh, there's the, and then then we're starting to look for for some other things as well. Um, is is knowledge of the particular business you're working in? For example, if if I'm going to go apply for a job at a bank, should I have any background? And this is people with more experience, obviously. So if if I were running a bank, I could answer this competently. And our organization has grown, but not to the point where I have my 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 own bank yeah. in it. Uh, from a distance, I would I wouldn't care too much about this. I would look for skills that are harder to find. And let me show you one, uh, which uh, is, is like the, the skill from hell, as far as uh, hiring is concerned. It's writing. Hmm. Finding people who can write more or less adequately, convey non-trivial ideas in writing, is freakingly hard. Uh, I have mo more than the utmost respect for my staff. I mean, there are some of these people, they are brilliant, and I can only kneel and admire and say, those guys are just freakingly good. But out of that bunch of people, there are perhaps two or three who can write prose adequately. And, uh, and it's, it's a very, in, in, in any, any computing job, any developer job, at some point you have to write either reports or, uh, or proposals. Or proposals are the worst, are the hardest piece to write because uh, a proposal is not about facts. It's not only about facts, it's about seduction. Mm -hmm. it's, if you could put music behind it, you should, but obviously that's a bit of a stretch. And, and that's why I say, um, that's why I'm so keen on hiring people uh, who've got PhDs or even that have taught at universities, because mm -hmm. these people have at least one skill that is extremely hard to find. They have probably published papers, ergo, they have written those papers. They have written skills that are otherwise extremely, extremely hard to find. One thing I've noticed in some of the... Um 
in your case as well, but some of the most talented people I've worked with have uh, in, in software have musical backgrounds. Uh, I, I love the way you say, well, in your case as well, and then the most, so I'm obviously not in the most talented. You're, no, no, fine. you're, you're on fine. my that's list. Absolutely. You're right on my list. You're right on the top of my list with those people. Um, but I'm, I, I see I, two, two of the, I'm going to say the best solution uh, architects, and, and they both know how to write code, and they both know how to pick out people who do write code well, and they also know what to do with people who don't write code well. Uh, they both have strong musical backgrounds. Uh, one of them performs in jazz clubs in New York City. Another one is, is you know, is, is a real strong, you have a strong, you're a composer, right? So, um, you know, th there's, there's some, there seems to be some corollary there. Yeah, and at, this, at the same time, it's one of those things where I, I, I wouldn't want to read too much into it. For instance, yeah. if you ask me to sing, you're going to review that statement like instantly, right? <laughs> um, I, I, so... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. There may be something. There, mm. there, there, there may be something. Uh, but for me, it's just a, the, the other side of my life. Yeah. It's a, uh, the only place, and that's an interesting point, by the way, um, the only place where there's a strong, strong connection is that, I mean, this is the 21st century. Um, we seldom compose by writing in pay, on paper. We uh, mm -hmm. use software. And, and the software, I've, the software to, to put scores together, not even composing, which is like a creative process, but just the clerical work of putting scores together. Those software are so frequently complicated that, mm -hmm. that I cannot imagine. And, and, and they're full of abstractions and layers and concepts here and concepts there. I mean, full of things that to computer scientists make sense. But I know musicians. There's not a single of the musicians I know who could proficiently use one of those. So I, I'm, I, I sometimes wonder, how do other people do that? It, for me, as a computer scientist, I feel perfectly fine with this. There, there is, a, uh, there is a, an extreme example of this. There's a, a, a public domain tool called LilyPond, open source. Fantastic. I mean, it is the, the gold standard when it comes to, uh, to, to uh, putting up scores. It, it does the most crisp scores ever. But... For practical purposes, it's a programming language where you describe your score and it, it produces a score at the end of the, uh, of the process. So it is as counterintuitive to a, to a layman as can be. And it's, it, it's, it has grown, but let's say 10 years ago when I was pretty busy with, with, with those people, uh, it was a small community. And I asked around and said, listen, of all the people here, are you all uh, computer educated? 100% of them were. There is nowhere under the sun someone who doesn't have that frame of mind of understanding, okay, right. listen, it, it's, it's a programming language for scores, could, could use something of that kind. Can, can our schools, and I'm going to open this up more broadly, but I'm, I was going to just ask, can our universities, but can our, 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 our universities, but also our broader education uh, system or environment, is, is, is there more they can do? in terms of providing uh, more formality of, of education in this field? Uh, more appetite for sure, more mm -hmm. appetite for sure. So I, I can only applaud when uh, teenagers or even younger kids, you know, uh, get exposed to coding and, and mm -hmm. do stuff. And, and then you, we're talking about pleasure, you can really see the, 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 your, your population divided into the one that, that take it and say, okay, this is freakingly right. cool. And the ones that just don't get it and then don't bother with it. Right. Uh, but that part really could definitely be done. There, there's something, and, and 
very interestingly, um, I, I remember I was I was shocked. There was that initiative in it, it was in Belgium. There was that initiative where they say, "Yeah, we want to get more women in IT." I can only applaud mm. because I'd love to have more gender diversity within the organization, but I can only hire people who apply, right? Uh, and then the, the lady said, yeah, we have this initiative for people in IT. And in, in the same sentence, literally in the same sentence, she goes, oh, and you have to realize that in IT, there, there are non-technical jobs and say, what's the problem with technical jobs? What, why did you say, oh, women can come in, and, but not technical jobs? Listen, if anything, if there's a technical job where you literally don't get your hands dirty, it's ours. By all means, apply. So uh, definitely, that it it should be vulgarized. Everybody, everybody should be exposed to it. Uh, if, I mean, I think it would be much better. And if only so that people can get a taste out of it and then decide whether they like it or not. I'm not saying that everybody should be proficient, but should have a taste of it. That's great advice, actually, for our, our um, you know, I, I didn't have an opportunity. And, and when I was in high school, it was unheard of to have even a computer in the building, let alone, I mean, because of the rareness of computers. But now they're, they're everywhere and they, they can put some formal training into, into some of the lower levels. And you, want, you could start early. Now, again, you see the, the, some of the kids just gravitate towards it by, them, by themselves. But if we exposed enough people to it, so maybe we could expose them earlier uh, to, to, to the opportunity and to some formal training, uh, more diversity, more encouragement there as well, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, if you were going to give it any advice to um, software development teams or people who run those teams today uh, out in organizations, um, not your type of organization, but general, you know, banks, insurance companies, manufacturing, uh, what would that advice be today? There is no replacement to good people. At the end of the day, it's about having good people. Everything, every attempt to replace good people by some kind of framework, mm -hmm. uh, processes, uh, architecture, methodology have failed and after like 50 years of trying perhaps it's about time we say well you know it just won't work thinking that by an incremental variation on one of the parameters it suddenly is going to work out of the blue sounds like ill-invested optimism to me. i've tried to tell executives i work with it executives that these people are not interchangeable parts but um i i do want to thank you for your uh great advice and insights today and and you know the insights that i don't think we can get in other places so really appreciate it my guest today has been darius blasban CEO of Raincode. We've been discussing the rise and fall of software recipes. You can contact Darius at Darius, at D-A-R-I-U-S, at Raincode, one word, R-A-I-N-C-O-D-E.com, or at his website, Raincode.com. Uh, you'll find links to material related to our discussion today, including his book on my website, uh, radio show page, at tacticalstrategygroup.com. Thank you, Darius, for sharing your insights today. And thank you for having me. Okay. And my guest next week will be uh, Janana Kampara, and we'll be discussing cybersecurity and systems insurance, uh, assurance, sorry. Uh, we've been listening to the North Star. I'm your host, William Ulrich, and you can contact me by email, LinkedIn, or on my website. Thanks for joining me today, and I'll talk to you all next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to the North Star Please join host William Ulrich for another edition of the program next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll continue our discussion on strategy execution then. 